Good morning. My name is Dan Thompson, and um, glad to be with you all. Um, my son Will and his wife Andy are here and have to slip out, so if you see a couple get up and leave in the middle of the service, it's not because they objected to something that was said. Uh, they've got to catch a plane back to New York, but it's been good to be with the Harvey family for this weekend celebration for the wedding. And um, I was thinking this weekend, Thanksgiving weekend, I first met Warren 38 years ago this weekend. So I went to um, with my girlfriend at the time, Margaret, to meet her family. And um, I stayed in the room with Warren. He had two twin beds in the room and um, got began getting to know him. He was in high school maybe at the time. So, um, yeah, known him a long time and seen what God has done in his life. It's been amazing to see God take him through college, lead him together with Kathy and, and um, uh, then call him into ministry and to see where God has brought him. So um, a pleasure to be with you all. For a scripture text, I'd like to read just one verse from John chapter 15. I think I'll make reference to a lot of verses this morning, but John 15, verse 11. These things I have spoken to you that my joy may be in you and that your joy may be full. This is the first Sunday of Advent. Advent means the arrival or the coming. Uh, when we think of Advent in the church, we think of the coming of God's Son in flesh, the long-awaited Messiah that God promised would come. But why did Jesus come into the world? And you can answer that question from a lot of different directions from the Bible. He came to save. Even the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. Luke 19.10, for the Son of Man came to seek and to save the lost. So Jesus came to save. You could say he came to give us life. Jesus said, I came that they might have life and have it abundantly. You could say Jesus came to give us peace. Peace I leave with you. My peace I give to you, Jesus said, John 14, 27. In another sense, you could say the coming of Jesus did not bring peace. It brought division. If you look at Revelation 12, which uh, might have some parallels to the book of Daniel, um, when the Christ child comes and he's, Satan is not able to get him, he's snatched away to heaven in the end. The devil becomes angry and makes war against the church. So in one sense, even as Jesus said, I have not come to bring peace, but a sword. His coming brought division. It brought conflict into the world. But in the truest sense, it brought us peace, peace with God. You could say he came to give us light. Colossians 1, 12, giving thanks to the Father who has qualified you to share in the inheritance of the saints in light. He has delivered us from the domain of darkness and transferred us to the kingdom of, of his beloved Son, which echoes something Jesus said in John 12, I have come into the world as light, so that whoever believes in me may not remain in darkness. This morning, I want to focus on just one particular reason for his coming, and it's found in that verse that we read just a minute ago. These things I have spoken to you that my joy may be in you and that your joy may be full. Jesus came into the world to give us joy. He came to preach the good news of the kingdom of God. For this purpose, he says, that my joy may be fulfilled in my people. John 17, 13. These things I speak in the world that they may have my joy fulfilled in themselves. But what did he mean by joy? What is joy? I'd like to look at just a couple of questions this morning, uh, focusing on that. What is joy? And then second, why is it so important that we actually feel joy? 
And particularly as we come to Advent season and think about the arrival of Jesus, why is it so important that we feel joy? He called it my joy. So it's closely linked to Jesus. It's not something that we have apart from him. And this joy is something he wanted his disciples to have in fullness, that your joy may be full. Commenting on this passage, Leon Morris said, Jesus is not speaking of a minor moment of happiness. He is speaking of a never-failing joy. And that joy, no matter how difficult the outward circumstances may be, is the continuing possession of the servants of God. A never-failing joy is our continuing possession. You know, the fruit of the Spirit, one of the fruits is joy. A joy is produced in our hearts by the Spirit. Love, joy, peace. But what is joy? Remember the angels, when they appeared to the shepherds in the fields around Bethlehem, and they said, Fear not, for behold, I bring you good news of great joy that will be for all the peoples. When you receive good news, what do you feel? If you're waiting for a diagnosis to come back from the doctor and he says, I have some good news, it's not cancer. What do you feel? You know, joy is an emotion of delight. It's gladness, delight, pleasure, satisfaction. Think about this. If Jesus came that his joy might be in us, then God cares about how we feel. I know that sounds strange to some people because you hear people say things like, you know, their son or daughter is doing things that... Uh, are, are not honoring to the Lord, and they're not doing anything about it, but they say, well, I just want him to be happy. And you say, no, that's not all that God has for us. God wants us to be holy, not just happy. But sometimes people can hear in that kind of comment that God doesn't really care about how we feel. He cares about how we behave, how we act. And that's just not true. God does care about how we feel. God cares about how we feel because you can't receive the truth without being moved by it emotionally. You can't respond to the truth of the gospel without your emotions being involved. Truth is outside you. It comes from outside you. It's not something you find in yourself. It's a description of what is ultimately real in the universe. Truth comes to you through your mind. It comes from outside you and it gets into you through your mind. But how do the bare facts of what is true actually change you? Mind, emotion, and will are all involved in conversion and in living the Christian life. They are inseparable. Mind has to do with what you think, what you understand, what you come to believe as you hear the gospel. Will has to do with desires, the choices that you make. The inclination to do something comes from your will. Emotion has to do with how you feel about all of that. And the inclination to do something in response to the truth depends on your feelings. You have to want and desire and delight in the truth in order to do something in response to the truth. Think about how the gospel came to you when you began to understand and hear the gospel. You heard that you were a sinner and your sin separated you from God who is holy. And some sense of the majesty of God and the holiness of God began to affect you. You began to understand it and believe it. And how did you feel? You felt guilty. You felt shame. You felt fear, sorrow, grief, and you longed for forgiveness. If in response to those feelings, you come to God in repentance and ask him to forgive you, your will is responding in appropriate ways to the truth that has come into your mind and stirred your emotions. So you do certain things like repent and trust God in response 
to the gospel message. As God gives you confidence to believe that you are forgiven, that you are loved, adopted, accepted in Christ, your response involves your emotions. You love God. Um, gratitude is stirred, a desire for God, and joy and gladness and, forgiven are, and forgiveness are stirred up. Mind, feelings, and will are involved in conversion and in sanctification. You can distinguish between these parts of what the Bible calls your heart, but you can't separate them. They always work together. God gave us the ability to feel. And as the Holy Spirit works through the gospel message to convince us of God's love for us in Christ's saving grace, he moves us to respond to him. He gave us emotions because we were made in his image and likeness. You think about it, God is described in the Bible as feeling things like joy and grief, anger and love. God so loved the world. If you've been around the church for very long, you've probably heard that there are different Greek words for love. There's the word phileo, which means a brotherly kind of love, love one another with brotherly affection, Romans 12. There's storge, which I don't think is used actually in the New Testament, but it was a Greek word that was commonly used for family love, to describe the love of parents for their children. There was the word eros, which is a romantic kind of love. And the word, there's the word agape. And you've heard that that word means an unconditional love. God loves us not based on some condition that we meet to merit that love, uh, not on some potential that he sees in us for what we can do for his kingdom, but he loves us without any condition that we meet ahead of time. His love is a steadfast love. The word um, agape actually translates or is used in the New Testament when the word hesed is used in the Old Testament for God's unfailing love, his steadfast love. God chooses not to treat us as our sins deserve or repay us according to his iniquity, but, or to our iniquity, excuse me. Um, but does that mean that God's love for us is only a commitment to save us and to treat us with kindness? Does God actually feel affection for you? Man, imagine this scenario. You've been studying the Greek words for love, and you go home after church one day, and you say to your wife, <clears throat> I have something to tell you. Um, I love you, but my love for you is no longer about what I feel. My love has grown into the true agape love of the New Testament, which is about my determined commitment to you, not about how I feel. And wives, how would you, what would you think about that? Is that going to work? I see you shaking your heads. Why not? I mean, you want your husband to have a, a determined commitment to you, a steadfast, loyal love, but you also want him... To, to actually like you. You, know, you want him to have some feelings for you. Uh, you want to know that he genuinely wants to be with you, not like he's staying with you out of a bare sense of duty or commitment. Do you want something less from God? To say God loves us means God is not only merciful and willing to treat us with grace, but that God really cares about us individually, that he actually feels affection for us. I know that is so hard to believe at times because we are so conditioned to, to build our sense of being accepted on how well we're performing, how well we're doing. And if we know we've not been doing well lately, then we tend to think, how could God actually love me? Or you look at the world. There's billions of people out there. You think, how can God love? And there's millions of people that belong to the church. You think, how can God love all of them individually? When I first got married, I mean, I really I loved my wife. And then we, a couple of years later, when our daughter was born, I thought, how can I love another human being as much as I've loved my wife? 
And then our son, our son, we had a son that was born. And I thought, how am I going to love my son as much as I've loved my daughter? And you realize after a while as parents, you don't have to divide your love and in, into equal portions for your children. Uh, it's like you have a capacity to love them with your whole heart and a capacity to love the next child with your whole heart. And God's love is beyond our comprehension. And God loves us individually in ways we can't begin to understand, but it's not limited or divided into just a little bit of his love. He loves us wholeheartedly, just like we learn to love our children. And when God commands us to love him with our heart, soul, mind, and strength, that means he wants more than a bare commitment of the will for us to obey him. It's not like he just wants a bare commitment. He's going to call that love, and you just do it out of a sense of duty. Good relationships between husbands and wives, parents and children, and relationships with good friends always depend on feelings and emotions. And the same is true in your relationship with God. How God feels about you matters very much, and how you feel about God matters very much. This is the amazing truth you find in the Bible. God is passionate in his love for his redeemed people. He feels love. Some of you are, who have are studied some theology know the Westminster Confession of Faith and say, but wait a minute, doesn't Westminster Confession say, I think it's chapter 2, uh, talking about the attributes of God, he is without passions. Well, yes, it does say that. But what that means in that context is that God is not fickle like we are in his moods. He doesn't suddenly change moods because some feeling overwhelms him. We experience emotions in ways impacted by our creatureliness and by our sinfulness. So emotions sometimes take over and shape how we act, but God is not like that. To say God is without passions means he is not changeable. He is always consistent with his nature and character. But it does not mean that God doesn't, in some sense, feel things like love, anger, and joy. I mean, listen to this, Isaiah 62, 5. As the bridegroom rejoices over the bride, so shall your God rejoice over you. I didn't make that up. That's there in Isaiah's prophecy. This is what God says he feels for those he redeems. He feels delight that flows out of his love. He feels joy in his love for you. And in return, God commands his people to feel joy in their relationship with God. God commands you to feel something in response to him. You say, well, wait a minute. How can God command me to feel something? He can command me to do something. He can command me to believe certain things, but feelings are kind of outside my control, right? Well, amazingly enough, what you find in the Bible are lots of commands to feel things. For example, Philippians 2, be anxious, uh, do not be anxious about anything. Maybe it's not Philippians 2, but it's in Philippians. Do not be anxious about anything, but in everything, by prayer and supplication, with thanksgiving, let your requests be made known to God. And the peace of God that will that surpasses understanding, will guard your heart and mind in Christ Jesus. Don't be anxious about anything is a command. Anxiety is the opposite of peace. It's a, when you're feeling overwhelmed by some something that's coming up, you don't feel much peace. But God commands you, don't be anxious. How about love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength? That's a command to feel something toward God, to love him, to want him more than you want anything else. And the angels commanded the shepherds, do not be afraid. They're commanding a feeling, um, not to let it fear control them. We read Psalm 98 a little bit ago, and it's, there's a command. Make a joyful noise to the Lord. Break forth into joyous singing. Now, those are commands. 
Rejoice in the Lord. I say it again, rejoice. That's a command. It's an imperative. To rejoice is to be full of joy. To rejoice is to express the joy that you feel. So if the gospel is alive in you, it will stir your emotions. It will move you and at the level of your feelings. So God does command us to feel things toward him. And if you're not feeling joy or love toward God, ask him to work at that level to renew joy and love for him in your heart. Second question, moving on, is, um, <clears throat> is this. Why is it so important that we feel joy? Imagine trying to do something that is hard without any enjoyment in the activity at all. I've watched Warren for years coach his boys playing baseball. <coughs> Think of little Josh. Um, remember him when he was like, what, four, five? When we'd be together for family vacations, he'd be playing the whole ball game all by himself. He was the only one there, but he was hitting the, the walk-off home runs. Um, you know? <coughs> you look at, at Josh and you say, well, maybe he was born with a natural ability for baseball. That could be. And maybe all of Warren's kids were born with a natural ability for baseball. But what you can't see when you see someone playing a game is the hours of practice, the discipline that went into learning how to play the game better. Nobody would invest those hours of practice and discipline. Nobody would spend that many hours coaching those kids in that if he didn't love the game. There had to be a, a love for it, a lack of love for the game, a lack of joy in playing the game would drain away any desire, any energy, any strength needed to push through all the difficulties and the pain of training. So imagine your friend sees you reading your Bible one morning before you start work and he says, what are you doing? You say, well, I'm having devotions. Um, he says, well, what does that mean? And you say, well, I, I read the Bible for 15 minutes every day. And he says, why? And you say, because that's what Christians do. We have devotions. Your friend says, do you enjoy it? And what if he said, you know, honestly, not really. Some days it's pretty boring, but Christians have devotions, so I do it. Well, maybe your friend is wise enough to point out to you that the word devotion means feelings of ardent love. To be devoted to your wife does not mean you gut it out and you treat her kindly out of a sense of duty. And to be devoted to God is not doing things out of duty alone with no joy in the doing. If you try to make the Christian life a matter of willpower. You're doing your duty every day without any feeling of desire for God or any sense of enjoyment in the doing, after a while, you'll feel spiritually dead. You'll feel burned out. So God commands us to be joyful and to rejoice because it's a lot easier to want to do things that grow your relationship with God deeper, like spending time reading your Bible or praying. It's a lot easier when you feel deep love for God and joy in your relationship with him. Romans 14, 17, Paul says, for the kingdom of God is not a matter of eating and drinking, but of righteousness and peace and joy in the Holy Spirit. Being a Christian is not about a list of duties that uh, you put on yourself because people have told you this is what you do if you're a Christian. It's about being right with God, experiencing God's peace in your soul, and feeling joy in the Holy Spirit. When you put it in the right order, then those disciplines that are needed for growing actually are easier to do. Joy is God's provision for endurance and patience in the difficult times of life. Think of Jesus as he was going to the cross. The writer of Hebrews says, For the joy that was set before him, he endured 
the cross, knowing what would be accomplished through his suffering, gave him the endurance to go through the pain of that suffering. The more you love something, the harder you will work at it. And the more you enjoy it, the more passionately you will pursue it. So when Jesus said, these things I have spoken to you, that my joy may be in you and that your joy may be full. My joy for Jesus was delight in doing his father's will. The delight he felt in doing what was needed to save. And this is what he wants us to feel. The delight, the satisfaction, the deep gladness he felt for his father is what he wants us to experience. Psalm 1611, you make known to me the path of life. In your presence there is fullness of joy. At your right hand are pleasures forevermore. Christ's joy is a sense of pleasure in the Father. Emotions are always about something. They always have a reason or an object. You don't feel, I mean, you don't feel something like anger, sadness, grief, fear, compassion, love, or joy for no particular reason. When I fell in love with Warren's sister, Margaret, I didn't suddenly have a vague feeling of love in my heart. And Margaret happened to walk by at the time and my love locked onto her as the object of my affection. You know, there were reasons why I chose, I fell in love with her. I wanted her. I was drawn to her beauty, her personality, her intelligence, her talents, her love for God, and much more. Love always has an object. And joy always has an object. It's about something. You ever feel angry and you can't particularly put your finger on why you're feeling angry? Um, I see some heads nod. You know that too. I know that. I've learned if I start tracing it back and start asking myself, why am I feeling that way? Uh, you can trace it back and begin to understand what is behind it. It's always about something. Um, have you ever woken up in the morning and felt sad? And you couldn't quite figure out why you were feeling so down. Uh, again, trace it back. Start thinking, what's going on? What am I believing? It's like sometimes there's this podcast going on in your head that's telling you what is true about the world and about your life and about yourself and what people think about you and all the rest. And you let that tape play around or that sound play around in your head long enough and it starts to influence how you feel. So sadness um, has a reason. When Jesus said, these things I have spoken to you, that my joy may be in you and that your joy may be full, he wasn't naive about the world in which we live. He didn't live in a Disney kind of story where everything always wraps up neatly. He knew what was coming for himself. When he told his disciples these things in the upper room, the night he was about to be betrayed, he knew what would happen to his disciples in the years to come. They would be arrested. They would suffer persecution. They would be in prison. Most of them would be martyred sooner or later. But knowing all this, he said, these things I have spoken to you that my joy may be in you and that your joy may be full. Joy always has an object. It's always about something. When the Apostle Paul says, rejoice in the Lord, yeah. it's in the Lord. There's an object to joy. There are reasons for finding joy in the Lord. Jesus did not come to give us temporary feelings of giddy happiness for no particular reason. When he said, these things I've spoken to you, he's talking about the truth that he has proclaimed. What things? Well, if you go back just a few verses to John 14, Jesus tells him, let not your hearts be troubled. Believe in God, believe also in me. In my Father's house are many rooms. If it were not so, would I have told you that I go to prepare a place for you? And if I go and prepare a place for you, I will come again 
and will take you to myself, that where I am, you may be also. This world and its brokenness is not all there is to the story of our lives. There is a future promised, a future that does not include hatred and violence and anger and suffering, hunger and death. No more angry men driving an SUV through a Christmas parade. You know, we believe what Jesus has said, I go to prepare a place for you. But we have a hard time hanging on to those promises at times because we live in a very broken world. Well, there's more good news. God has not left us alone to work all this up in our own hearts by our own strength. Jesus said, I will ask the Father and he will give you another helper to be with you forever, even the Holy Spirit, the Spirit of truth. I will not leave you as orphans. I will come to you. However alone you may feel at times, you are not alone. God is with you. In a world where people's approval and acceptance of you depends on what you can do for them or on how you look, in a world where being really loved and valued is so rare, Jesus said, if anyone loves me, he will keep my word and my father will love him and we will come to him and make our home with him. You are loved, you are wanted, you are treasured. Psalm 35, 27, let those who delight in my righteousness shout for joy and be glad and say evermore, great is the Lord who delights in the welfare of his servants. Zephaniah 3.17, The Lord your God is in your midst, a mighty one who will save. He will rejoice over you with gladness. He will quiet you by his love. He will exult over you with loud singing. We are so loved by God that he sent his only son to die in our place because that was the only way he could secure for us an eternal joy. And there's much more. All the rich truths of the gospel, of God's grace in Jesus Christ, are the ground, the foundation of our joy. Joy is about something. It has an object. John Calvin, in the Institutes of the Christian Religion, said this, How can the mind be aroused to taste the divine goodness without at the same time being wholly kindled to love God in return? For truly, that abundant sweetness which God has stored up for those who fear him cannot be known without at the same time powerfully moving us. So even John Calvin said, yeah, we should have feelings for God. If you understand the magnitude of these things that Jesus has said and what he has done for us, then how can it not affect our hearts? How can it not stir your emotions? How could you not feel joy? Jesus said to his disciples, John 16, a little while and you will see me no longer. And again, a little while and you will see me. He was about to be arrested, killed, buried in a tomb, and it would feel to them like everything they had hoped for was dashed. It was gone. It all fell apart. Jesus said, truly, truly, I say to you, you will weep and lament, but the world will rejoice. You will be sorrowful, but your sorrow will turn into joy. He would see them again after his resurrection, and they would be overwhelmed with joy. Jesus himself is our joy, and he can't be taken from us. And that makes the joy we have in him so secure and so eternal. There's a Christmas carol. I don't know if you know it. I asked the uh, worship leader, the music director at our church, if we could sing it in a few weeks. And he said, we've never done that one. They don't, nobody knows it. I said, well, they need to know it. It's a really good Christmas carol. All my heart this night rejoices. Sound familiar? I don't see, well, a few nods. So listen to some of these words. All my heart this night rejoices as I... Here, far and near, sweetest angel voices. Christ is born, their choirs are singing, till the air everywhere, now with joy, is ringing. 
it goes to the gospel, shall we dread God's displeasure, who to save freely gave his most cherished treasure. To redeem us, he hath given his own son from the throne of his might in heaven. Come then, banish all your sadness, one and all, great and small, come with songs of gladness. Love him who with love is glowing. Hail the star near and far, um, light and joy bestowing. Dearest Lord, thee will I cherish. Though my breath fail in death, yet I shall not perish, but with thee abide forever there on high in that joy which can never vanish. Now that's what we need to remember as we come to the Advent season. Jesus came into the world to save. He came to give us life and light, peace with God. He also came to give us a joy that can never vanish. He came to enable us to glorify God and enjoy him forever. Thanks be to God for his indescribable gift. Let's pray together. Father, I thank you for the joy that you have given us in Jesus Christ. We are creatures, so our emotions rise and fall. Um, we don't hold on to a constant sense of joy. It kind of comes and goes. And we are also sinners, so we tend to believe stories. We tend to believe claims for truth that undermine our joy. As we come into this Advent season and remember again the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ and your great gift, that indescribable gift that you have given us in sending your Son into the world to be our Savior, would you renew within us a deep sense of joy and gladness in Jesus Christ? In his name we pray. Amen.